Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. We're going on four seasons now of the Unstyled podcast, and so far, I've only had one guest on more than once, three times to be exact, and that's Stacey London. Stacey became a beloved fixture in viewers' hearts and lives since hosting the now iconic makeover show, What Not to Wear. Whether it's teenagers or grandmothers, I've witnessed both rush up to Stacey on the street and literally go bananas. It's hard for many of her fans to separate her from that reliable presence in their lives. Part mentor, part life coach, part fashion guru, a trifecta of roles that are essentially Stacey's sweet spot. Since hosting What Not to Wear more than a decade ago, Stacey's been busy. She writes for various publications, including Refinery29. She hosts events, does interviews, and she's working on a book detailing her philosophies on the evolutionary woman, a developing archetype she not only coined and embodies, but also champions in other unconventional women taking full ownership of their destinies. Whether it's talking about her life-altering spine surgery, devastating breakups, opting out of kids, or losing all her money, Stacy is never not an open book. But then, last October, something happened that was harder for Stacy to process and inevitably bounce back from, the death of her father. Like anyone who suffers the sudden loss of a central grounding relationship in their lives, Stacy retreated, emerging only occasionally on social media to share her pain, and we all mourned with her. Eventually, as she began to find her way around a life without her father, she did what she's always done when she's found herself struggling. She talked about it in ways that helped me and so many other women come to terms with the fallout, loss, grief, and what it means to find the courage to rebuild in the shadow of someone you loved. But then again, that's Stacy, simultaneously blowtorching the path and venturing out ahead while also leading us along with her, reminding us not to be afraid. Change is hard, pain is temporary, and survival isn't always pretty. A transformation, that's beautiful. Stacey London, hi. Hi. I'm so happy to be back, Christine. How I'm, are you? I'm so happy that you came back. You're the only guest that's not only come back to the podcast twice, but three times. This is your third time on Unstyled. Three times lucky. Something that has been so extraordinary about you and you being on the show is that you've always been so honest about sharing you know, everything that you're going through. And it's refreshing because I think more of us need to hear stories about struggle and loss and, and, and opportunities and success and all those kinds of things. It's the full spectrum of experiences that we have as ambitious women that want things. The last time you were on the show, you talked about your year of having spine surgery and how life-changing that was, not just in a medical way, but really in every way it is possible to be changed. Mm. You also went through an enormous breakup and we can probably count how many times we fall apart in this episode, but <laughs> I had just had my, my baby literally seven weeks early. It was quite shocking, and your father passed away around the same time, yeah. and you guys were super close, and I think we were both going through our own sort of personal, I guess, I don't even know what to call it. It's, it's Struggle. I mean, yeah. I, I think, I really do think the word is struggle. I think 
you know, I, I went to see you in NICU and I could see, obviously, I mean, first of all, Rafi's just, she was beautiful then, she's beautiful <laughs> now, and she's like such a little fighter and, you know, she clearly gets that from her mama. But, you know, the amount of anxiety that being there was causing you, I mean, that was clear to me. And I think that, you know, that that in and of itself is a struggle. You you want to protect this little thing that you created. How could you not feel those things? I know, my little bird. Your little she bird. She was my little bird, and she's like... She's so robust now. Yes. Well, uh, I, I mean, I, I expected nothing less. Yeah. You know, we hadn't spent a lot of time during your pregnancy together because I spent most of last summer putting everything on hold when my dad got really sick. He he had been diagnosed years and years before, almost completely asymptomatic of a certain kind of heart disease. And they did warn us that when it was going to get bad, it would get bad fast. And it would be like sort of falling off a cliff. And, you know, for years, my dad was like, I'm going to beat this. Of course, that's not going to happen to me. And it happened just like they said it would. And so he went from being, you know, his very robust, very macho, charismatic self to, you know, somebody who had to come to terms with being truly sick. And for somebody like my dad, who is very proud, I think that being sick was just as hard as facing death, really. I think that for him, not being able to live his life the way that he always had, which was like very prolific writer, very, very busy all the time, it took a lot of meaning and a lot of purpose away from him, which I didn't realize until I, I really didn't know how to deal with my dad being sick. I'll be honest. I I would show up. I would meet my stepmother. We would go to the doctor. I would help with the wheelchairs. You know, We would help him in and out of the car. Eventually, we had nurses for him. And really, a lot of it was just spending time there while he was sleeping or, or whatever it was. But I think the one thing that really helped me was I read a book called Being Mortal by, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, Atul Gawanda, whose own father got very sick while he was writing the book. And it was so revelatory to me that I actually thought, I'm going to stop doing everything I'm doing and I'm going to go into palliative care. I am going to go into care for people who are elderly and people who are sick because our country is so broken when it comes to that. And there are, I know Refinery29 actually did a huge article about a death doula. Mm -hmm. And I realize how incredibly important that is now. But what that book taught me was, you know, this, uh, this gentleman who wrote it started off about talking about nursing homes and how we throw away the elderly, how nursing homes are advertised to the people who are going to put people away, not the people themselves. So look, mom, it has a swimming pool, but mom hasn't like walked in a year, you know, like now she's going to swim. It's all sort of all the advertising is just to entice the middle aged people putting their elderly family away. And something about that really struck me as wrong. And but it's also such an enormous disappointment. I'm sure in, in a lot of ways, families don't want to do that, but they don't have the the capability of taking care of that loved one at home. Absolutely, or the resources. Yeah. But what I think is what it really taught me is the way that we should 
be changing nursing homes, the way we need to look at the elderly and those who get sick, is actually more complicated than the way that we do it. It's not enough to say, I can't handle this, and then put somebody away in a place where you know, they may or may not be taken well care of. Our culture doesn't value age. Not at all. It doesn't value age as, as I constantly think about. But but we don't value age at all in a society where we can afford to put people away, where we don't have to deal with them. And not everybody can. But, you know, old school, the way your parents would get old, you would take them in. You would live with them. You, they would live with your families. And that kind of cultural ritual is gone. You know, we don't we don't want that. We don't we can't handle that kind of baggage. Kids are enough or, you know, taking care of ourselves is enough or our partner or whatever. And it really dawned on me when this doctor to- talked about a study where all they did was they brought in a parakeet for each person in the nursing home. Six cats, four dogs, and the the amount of medicine that people took dropped by 50%. Because what I realized, and what I realized watching my dad, was that you have to have purpose. You have to have meaning. There's no reason to stick around if you don't have somebody to care for or love or something to put all your time and energy into. And my dad didn't love dogs and (laughs) all of my sisters and I... Who doesn't love a parakeet? Right. Who doesn't love a parakeet? But, you know, it just for him, I think that this summer it was really about figuring out how to talk to him in a way that wasn't condescending and wasn't talking to his illness, but talking to him. And I'm so grateful for that book. My, my friend John recommended it to me, and I'm indebted to him because it made me talk to my father in the way that my father would want to have been spoken to if he wasn't sick, right? It was about respecting his boundaries, his limits, and not forcing things on him. So Instead of saying, Dad, you know, we should walk today, whereas, you know, my dad had always been very athletic. And when he was diagnosed, the doctor said to him, when things get bad, you're not going to be able to walk across the street by yourself. You're going to need a walker. You're going to have to stop halfway through because you won't be able to breathe. And my dad never, ever accepted that diagnosis, even when it was happening, even when we got to that place where he couldn't walk, walk across the street. And it was so painful for me because, I mean, he's he was larger than life. He was like Superman to me. Your father's wake or his funeral, his funeral was uptown. Right. I forgot that you were there. (laughs) I was always uptown because that's where Rafi was when she was in the NICU and I was able to come and... I obviously came for you. I didn't know your father. I knew how close you were and your sisters, you know, the the relationship that you had with him and and I always knew what a what a remarkable person you thought he was. You always spoke about him in in such a godlike way. And when I I first of all, I couldn't even get into the It was standing room only. It was standing room only. <laughs> I mean, my we dad were, would have been so pleased. Yeah, and I was able to hear you speak and it was such a celebration of a person's life. And I had no idea that he had run for mayor. He, he And governor. And governor. And, and controller. <laughs> yeah, someone that cared deeply about his community and the city and also never missed a Valentine's Day and sending you and your sister's flowers. Yeah, and that he called us every day of my entire life. Every day. Every day, all three of us. What a beautiful, important, special thing to have, to have your father call you every day. I, I don't think I realized 
how special it was until after he passed. I mean, there are a lot of things that you just you can't recognize in the moment until you can't have them anymore. And one of the hardest things for me, aside from the idea that I would never get flowers from my dad again on Valentine's Day, was the fact that I was never going to have him call me just to say, you know, hello, I love you, goodbye. Like that was pretty, you know, it wasn't like these quick, long, uh, you know, that he would call me and we would have these long, intense discussions. It was just like, I'm checking in, I'm here, I love you. And I saved all the voice messages that my that I still had on my phone that my dad had left for me. And the night that he died, I did listen to all of them. And I was devastated because so many of them were, where are you? We haven't heard from you. How are you? What's going on? And how guilty I felt for letting him down, for not being more engaged with him. You know, there's a point, I think, in all of our lives where we're like, oh, dad, I can't. I, I have too much to do. I, I don't have time to talk. And I regret that so much. Even if it had just been to say, daddy, I love you. You know, I wish I'd done it more. As much as you think that you have done it, do it more. It's been four months, almost to the day since since he passed. And I realized that, that sometimes that feels like a lifetime and sometimes it just feels like it happened yesterday. And then there are days where I go to call him and it doesn't feel like it's happened at all. And I just forget. Well, I think the thing that I was really happy to talk with you about is the topic of grief and, and what yeah. we're left with after someone leaves our lives. I was looking up quotes about grief and, you know, so many people have written about grief. There are people that professionally write about grief. Yes. I really loved this Joan Didion quote and I wanted to ask you about it. And it, she just said that grief when it comes is nothing like we expect it to be. And I think there's so much truth in that. A thousand percent. I mean, I, I thought I understood grief. I, I've lost grandparents. I... You know, I think that there's a true grief to losing a, a, a romantic relationship. I think that there's a very similar kind of feeling. But when you lose a parent, particularly a parent that I was always close to and always saw, nothing could have prepared me for it. I mean, I knew he was sick this summer. I knew that it was it was going to be hard. I knew we were going to lose him. I did not think it would happen as fast as it did. We had... 13 hospitalizations last summer. He did not die of his heart disease. He died of infections incurred in being in the hospitals so much. And when he died, I I mean, I guess there were a couple of things. My stepmother and I were the only ones there. And not only not only did I see him die, I was with him when he died. Not the act of dying, but the moments after that. When you see somebody who you've only ever seen as alive and animated. And strong. And strong. Dead. <laughs> His eyes were wide open. I was like, they, they were still alive to me. It, it was the weirdest, hardest, most complicated, confusing moment for me. And I didn't feel like his spirit left his body and it was all around me. I don't know who comes up with this crap, but it wasn't like that at all. It was the emptiest, loneliest feeling in the world. And I still feel that. I still feel that when I think about the void that he left. But this is what is so interesting about grief is that it never presents itself neatly. 
It's never one thing. It's this kind of amorphous blob. Sometimes grief is like a warm blanket. You know, sometimes it's the thing that makes me feel like I'm still connected to him because when you love someone that much, the pain of losing them is so complicated and so massive. It, it, it Sometimes it feels like you can't breathe. And what I realize about that is you have to have gratitude for that kind of pain because that pain is only possible if you've loved somebody just as greatly. This idea that if you, you know, if you can carve out all that space for joy, you're going to you leave all that space for pain to enter as well. And I think that my family and I, we, we, we have all dealt with it differently, but we've all sort of come to the same conclusion. You know, my, I have two sisters and a stepmom, and, and my father was our glue. He was sort of the center of that universe, and we were all planets that kind of revolved around him. And we all had such different relationships with him. So, you know, we've all had to kind of come to terms with this in our own way. And, and for me, part of it isn't just what I didn't say, the things I didn't do. I have to try and remember all of the things um, that I'm grateful for, for the father that I had. You know, I think about it and I, and I write about it a lot on Instagram, which I know in some ways is a little bit weird. I still think, you know, I can, I'm concerned with the overshare society that we find ourselves in, that kind of overshare culture. But I find myself wanting to pay tribute to him and wanting other people to know how wonderful he was. And I have lots of, you know, lots and lots of friends who would disagree with every ounce of their being with his politics and things like that. But that isn't it for me. I mean, he had the most remarkable intellect, the most remarkable charm. He was such an incredible speaker. I think that all of the, the good qualities that I have, a lot of them come directly from, from watching him, not just from having his genes, but from seeing the way he behaved in the world and what a gentleman he was. And there is no world in which you, he wouldn't listen to another viewpoint. There was no, he was not argumentative in that way. There are so many things about him that I want to honor. And because I do want to talk about grief, because I do think that that is something that is, we really have to come to terms with as we come to terms with middle age. Now, of course, you know, there are always going to be people who lose their parents sooner or later, but we are really at that age where oh, yeah. in the natural order of things, our parents start to pass away. Yes. And there is something about that that feels very important to me, that feels like a real uh, spoke in the wheel of talking about aging, is talking about that point, that moment where you go from being the child to the adult, when it wasn't about my father taking care of me anymore, but it was absolutely about me taking care of my father and doing that in a way that felt respectful to him. And that I, I really, any argument, any mistakes that we had made in our relationship, any time that I turned away from him, all of those things that I could have felt really guilty about and now still do sometimes, I let all of that melt away. I spent as much time this summer just being with him. And the night that he died, I was cuddling in bed with him watching football. I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that I wasn't somewhere else, that I hadn't, you know, blown him off or blown off my stepmother who needed a break because let me tell you that woman was married to my father for 45 years and she stood by him every single second 
every moment that he was ill. She never, ever left him. And he didn't talk a lot about being sick. He didn't talk a lot about death. He complained, or not complained, but he would get grouchy and he would be like, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And what happens if you don't get married? Who's going to take care of you? You know, all of these things that at the time felt like real criticisms of my lifestyle. And it took me a while to realize, like, he was just afraid that he wouldn't be there to take care of things, to watch over us. And I remember once he said to me in the hospital, I don't want to leave you. And when I told my sisters, they were devastated because they thought that it meant that he didn't want to die. But I didn't take it that way at all. I took it much more as, I don't want to leave you because I can't take care of you if I'm not here. Well, he wants to make sure that you're okay. Absolutely. And also probably in in very parental fashion, just wanted to make sure that you're following through on the things that he believed, you know, you should be following through with. I mean, if anything, a good parent keeps tabs on you and makes sure that you're living at least (laughs) marginally to your potential. And I think that was something that we also talked about is losing a parent when my father died. I remember feeling like it was, it was a big, it was a milestone for me. And I, I was close with my father and I feel like in the final years that he was alive, I feel like I got to resolve some lingering issues that I had with him, but I feel very much at peace with him not being in our lives. I, I miss him now that I've had, I have a daughter and there's all sorts of strange feelings oh, of that come with having a baby around the time that you start to lose parents too. I think that is a, an interesting. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Interesting phenomenon of having a child later in life, but... Well, I think that's something that's going to happen more and more and more. And to be honest, I think that that requires a new... A new viewpoint, a new, a new way that we're going to have, new eyes that we're going to have to see through to lose a parent and have a child almost simultaneously is is going to require a different kind of emotional heft. And in some ways, I find it very reassuring because to me, that is the circle of life. And one thing that I, I guess that I'll always be sad about is, and I'm hoping my youngest sister, if she listens to this, has a baby real soon because <laughs> my sister and I did not have children. And the one thing that having three girls it just dawned on me that the name London doesn't doesn't continue as a last name. It could be a middle name, you know, I'm going to keep it, but it doesn't matter like once we all die out, that my dad's name dies out. And for me that that was something I was like, well we have to rectify that whether it's the middle name for a child, however that works out. I just I don't want I don't want his legacy to be lost. It's very interesting. I don't think it will be. I don't think it will be either. But it it is very interesting to me that, you know, a lot of what he did in his life was about his own work. He wrote 30 books. He wrote thousands of articles. I mean, I've never seen a man work harder or enjoy work more. But towards the end of his life, he started to talk a lot more about legacy, like in a way that felt very surprising to me. 
much more about legacy, less about profit, less about what we could make as opposed to what we could give, Yeah, which I loved. And it really, it, it made me feel like, ah, there there is this moment in life when maybe you know that you don't have a lot more of it, that you start to embrace the things that you kind of fought against in a weird way. And it really struck me that there was something that softened in my father. He would have those gruff days where he'd be like, what are you doing with your life? But then he would have these days where he would talk about legacy. He would talk about the future. He would talk about how hopeful he was. And that meant a lot to me. That, you know, it's funny, you said you were able to resolve some issues with your father. I didn't get to the issues with my dad. I literally, I don't know what it was. Something in me just let them melt away. So whether they were there for him or not at the end, they just weren't. They just didn't exist anymore for me. All these years that I'd be mad about something, this, that, we never got along about this. It was fascinating to me. I'm so good at holding a grudge. (laughs) And I just have never felt everything wash away from me like it did last summer. There was just, it wasn't about proving right or wrong or making up for some mistake. It was every single moment in that present moment mattered. And I wasn't going to screw around with it. I wasn't going to waste time. I didn't need to resolve things. I needed to love him. I needed to be there with him. I needed to hold his hand. That to me was, it was the greatest resolution I could ever have asked for. I knew I wanted to talk a lot about grief and and surviving grief and loss and and just the profound gifts that come from that space of, you know, being in between things and just figuring it out. I feel like I'm I'm always in between things now, honestly. Even when I'm focused on something, it feels life life changes. I mean, I think your perspective changes. Certainly as you get older, you know, scientifically your brain starts to perceive time as going faster right? Because you have less of it. It makes sense. But when you lose a parent, there there is something to this idea that all of a sudden, it's not that I don't want to be goal-oriented, but I feel much more strongly about being where I am at any given time. And the thing that I certainly know about grief is there is no rushing it. There's no getting past it. If you try, it will it will destroy you. No, you can't go around it. You have can't to go, go around it. it. The only way is through. And that means that, you know, I also have to, grief doesn't always come in this recognizable form where you're crying and you miss him. I mean, the night before Valentine's Day, I think was the first time I was so hysterical that I was screaming into a pillow how much I missed him. I had felt sad. I had been, I'd had crying jags. I missed him. I miss his voice. But Nothing like that. Nothing because I knew how hard that February 13th was always the day he sent the flowers because he was always worried they wouldn't arrive on time. So we would get them the 13th. The 13th was so much more painful for me than the 14th. But that was the first time that I cried like that. And we have now started a tradition where we're going to round robin it. And Mm -hmm. each sister will send the other sister flowers every year. It's beautiful. From now on, just in honor of my dad. And That is something wonderful that came out of it. I think that my relationship with my stepmother and my sisters just couldn't be stronger. You know, we very much committed to the idea that without the glue, we were going to make our own. 
And I don't know that I could have done what I've done in the past four months, how I've coped with this without them. I mean, it is it is a lonely business no matter what, but at least having people in your corner makes a huge difference. And, you know, the one thing I want to say about grief is it's it's just not, it's not always identifiable as grief. I mean, I have certainly had rage that I have like pointed at other things that is completely grown out of what grief is. There's anger, there's frustration. I mean, you and I know, I've talked about this. After my dad died, I basically stopped eating real food and I only ate (laughs) two pounds of caramel, only caramel M&Ms every day for six weeks. I cannot tell you what I have done to my body. It is brutal. You know, I will never forget my friend David. Best came, medicine. David will, David will appreciate this. He came over one night after my dad had passed away and he'd been to Shiva and we had dinner. I don't even remember. We ordered something and then I put out a bowl of caramel M&Ms like I always do. And I was like, see, have some. See, you'll understand why I'm obsessed. And he took one bite and he was like, well, that was a meal. <laughs> Now think about the fact that I was eating two pounds of them a day. You you can imagine why I don't really want to get dressed in the morning. I mean, that's really funny. That was a meal. That was a meal. Unstyled podcast was made possible by Estee Lauder, the eponymous luxury beauty brand created by one of the world's first women entrepreneurs. As a confident rule breaker ahead of her time, Mrs. Estee Lauder once said, if you push yourself beyond the furthest place you think you can go, you'll be able to achieve your heart's dream. In her entrepreneurial pursuit, she invented disruptive opportunities to connect directly with her customers in a personal way that altered the beauty industry forever. Learn more about how Estee Lauder is continuing her legacy in-store and online at estelauder.com. You and my friend David and a bunch of other people who did not know my father came to the funeral. And I will tell you, that really meant something to me. I've never been to a funeral where I went not knowing the person. And to see so many of my friends, people that I love, that I adore, that I admire, show up because they were there for me was one of the most incredible feelings of gratitude I have ever experienced. I felt that way a little bit too when when Rafi was in the hospital, there was a handful of people that brought me meals, that brought meals to me. My husband and I were having a grueling back and forth, you know, uptown to Mount Sinai to see Rafi every day and back and forth. And and it was hard to cook. It was hard to even just brush our teeth. It was just, we just felt so depleted. And one night, my friend Louisa texted me and she said, you know, I I made you something for dinner. I want to just bring it over right now. And and she literally hand delivered it. And it it was a homemade bolognese sauce. It was a big mason jar full of it with this beautiful, pasta for us to cook and also bread and jam for the following morning. Isn't that and just wonderful? It was so extraordinary. My husband held the bag and he looked in it like he was a child <laughs> himself and he looked at me and he said, can we make this tonight? And I literally started crying because neither one of us had cared for ourselves or each other and it was just such a moment and I learned so much in that moment and now whenever anybody is is going through something I'm going to bring them food I'm going to bring them something to nourish themselves and you know they don't need 
cards and presents and things like that. It's like just being there and just being it, it's such a it's such a primal thing. You I know? agree. And I, I will tell you, I think that's true of birth and death. I think that idea that it's easy to give birth to a child and oh the joy. You know, oh, look, I have enough friends having kids right now who are it's hard. They are they are struggling with how difficult oh, yeah. it can be. And the idea that we care for those who are in the midst of something as beautiful as birth, but we also know how difficult that can be. And that we honor death as something as beautiful and as hard. Uh, I think there is something very specific in what you're talking about, that idea of nourishing life. Yeah. Whatever life is new and whatever life is left behind still needs to be nourished. It still needs to be valued. And both birth and death sort of highlight that, right? I mean, that's those are the bookends. And so for the rest of us to take stock of that, to be able to say, I'm going to nourish people who need my help to live is so important. It's so important. You wrote an essay last year for us. I'm grateful to your contributions to Refinery29 when you write for us. Our audience loves it. I love it. I hope that you love doing it. And um, So much. I mean, your viewers, your readers, I don't even, your audience is... One of the most receptive and diverse that I've ever had the privilege to write for. It gives me such incredible perspective to hear the way your readers feel about certain topics. And a lot of what Refinery29 does is kind of break taboos, which is why I feel so comfortable sharing so much on here and with your audience, because I feel very safe. I feel very understood. I feel very seen. Thank you. That is that makes me feel like I'm doing a good job. You're doing a great job. Well, thank you. So we were sitting there having coffee and talking about this essay. I was so happy to share the news that it was one of the top performers of the year. I think it was number th- two or three. I think it was like literally drove that many, like hundreds of thousands of visits. That's so exciting. And it was an essay called The Year of Going of Broke, going broke yeah. which we had really workshopped that headline. And, you know, all about just the loss that you incurred last year and how you recovered from it, tried to recover from it. There was so much to talk about. And something that we were talking about as well was that you're working on a pilot for a new show. And you told me a little bit about it. I know it's not, we can't disclose it yet, but it sounds perfect for you in so many ways. I immediately had like a visceral reaction to it when you said it. I was like, yes, 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 yes. yes. I would watch that. Well, the one thing that I will say is, you know, we talked a lot last year and, and certainly in that article about how hard that year has been or was. What I realize now is that I'm really looking at a much bigger block of time than that. I would say the last three years have really like knocked the wind out of me. Every time I thought I was like, something tough would happen and I'm I'm going to get back up and I would just get knocked back down again. I've spent a lot of the last three years on my knees and there's no funny reference there. It's just, (laughs) there's no funny joke to be had. It's, I really, I have to say, I also had to find a spiritual practice, which is probably a conversation for another time. But because I did not realize how important that would be to me to have a relationship with, you know, I'm, I'm calling the universe God. But it really, it, it's sometimes the only thing that got me through some of this stuff. And, you know, we're talking spine surgery and breakups and uh, losing a friend to suicide and losing my father. I mean, it 
it just was relentless. And the one thing that did come out of it, and the reason I bring it up is, is because it's part of the reason I, I came up with the idea for the pilot, is this idea of like, we live our lives not expecting that life is going to get in the way of our lives, right? Life gets in the way of life sometimes. We lose track. We get off track. We get brought to our knees. And sometimes even that stupid saying like, you know, fall down seven times, get up eight is just like you just you're just trying to get up that eighth time. And like somebody is like, no, it's like somebody's got your head, their hand on your head and holding you underwater. It's like, I just want my eighth time. Yeah. And you have to fight hard for it. What I realize is that you cannot do it alone. There's no way. It's just impossible. You know, they're like, no man's an island. I'm like, no woman's an archipelago either. Like, I mean, I don't know what to tell you, but you need you need support. Whether that's one person, 10 people, 100 people, an audience of millions, I don't know what it is, but you cannot go it alone. It is impossible to shoulder that kind of burden without a community. And I, you know, I'm an isolationist. I'm the person when things go bad, I run away. I'll eat lots of M&Ms by myself and I'll watch every movie there is on Netflix, but I won't ask for help. And what the last three years have taught me is that if I don't ask for help, I, I won't. I won't make it. I, I don't have enough help in me to help myself alone. And it is essential that you find those people who can hold your hand. I think it's ironic that you consider yourself an isolationist. I know I've had those feelings myself sometimes when I just I just need to be alone. I just need or I'm just it's all I can do. It's all I it's all I have in me is to just be able to be alone. But we were having this coffee. We we're talking about the new pilot. I was really excited about it. And you shared something with me that I have felt, I think a lot of women our age have felt this way, you know, regardless of how much success we've experienced, sure. is you were like, you said to me really kind of frankly, you said, do you think anyone's going to care? <laughs> and <laughs> Which I, I do fear very much. I know you do. I know you do. I know you well enough to know that that is a genuine fear for you. And I think anyone that's had a tremendous amount of success on television, um, in the public eye, I think probably thinks about from time to time varying degrees of of wondering, does anyone really care? Um, women in particular, you of know, course. You, like I, like I haven't been on television regularly for three years, and that's like a lifetime in television. And guys, they they do get away with more. You know, they can kind of pop in and out. They're sort of accepted for where they're at. I mean. One of the funniest things is that I think about the way that I was, let's say, when I left What Not to Wear, which was another article I wrote for you about the way I used to dress and how my style has evolved. And now, you know, I've gained some weight. I'm not feeling as good about myself as I used to. I'm also cutting myself some slack because it's been a tough three years. But my style is so completely different. And I'm like, if I go back on television, are people just going to want the fashion authority that I used to be? But that's not that's not, again, that doesn't allow for evolution. I'm always going to care about style. I'm always going to care about women's confidence and self-esteem. But I just don't believe clothing can do everything that's required now. We, we live in a different time, in a different culture, and we need to care for each other by more than just telling them what to wear. When you said, do you think anyone's going to care? And I was like, oh, you know, I was insulted that you would even say it. I'm like, right. everyone loves you. I've never been in a place where people haven't, you know, come up to you or wanted to, you know, take a picture with you or, you know, get get your autograph. And as if on cue, I, know. 
I'm not. This is a true story. True story. As if on cue, the words are still floating out of my mouth. You know, in the in the little talk bubble. Mm. And this is a coffee shop in my neighborhood that I go to often, and I know many of these women by heart. You know, by name. They've never reacted to me this way. And um, I'm not famous, but one of them came over. She kind of snuck over and she was like, I'm really sorry to bother you two, but do you think I could take a picture with you? And I and I turned around and I just looked at you and I said, do you see what I mean? Yeah. I was like, do you see what I mean? I was like, I think people care. But then when she realized it was okay to be excited about meeting you, she literally lost her mind. <laughs> she lost her mind. And then all three of the other girls that were working in the cafe ran over because she had gotten permission to sort of get into your space. Geek out. And they, they literally were like teenage girls at, I don't even know. At a, at at a, a Troy Sivan concert. Jonas, <laughs> at, literally at a, at a Joe Jonas concert. Right, but literally... I couldn't even believe it. They were losing their minds. They were like all of like 20 years old, 22 years old. There something. was that one girl who was like, I'm just happy for, I hope you're really well. I hope you're really well. You know, cause she had, they had not missed a beat. They, one of them said that you reminded them of their childhood. You know, they, they watched the show with their moms, yeah. with their older sisters. And it is something that I just want to remind you because I love you so deeply and I, and I admire you so much and you're someone I look up to and you're a mentor to me and so many people, but that, it's just very rare to have the kind of success that you've had and to be have such a place in the hearts of so many people across demographics, across, you know, genders. It's like you are universally loved. And I think that as you embark on this new chapter and you continue to to heal yourself, you know, in the in the absence of your dad, and even though he's not absent at all, he's very much with you. I want you to remember that because I think that it is a testament to what you give, what you put out there into the world every day. You know, even though you don't think that you're making anything, you're always making something. I thank you for that. <laughs> I, I would like to say that I think my dad has so much to do with it. A lot of the good that I do, I mean, I'm not giving my mom any credit and she deserves it. But a lot of what I've been able to do career-wise has been because because my dad would say things to me like, you don't do things for the outcome. You do them because they're worth doing. Yeah. Stacy London, thank you so much for being a guest on Unstyled. I love it when you're here, and I hope you'll come back when the new show comes out. Oh, my God. I love being here, and I'll just sit in the corner. You don't even have to interview me. I'll just listen to everybody else's interviews. I hope you're inspired after hearing Stacy's story. For even more Unstyled Extras, Check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag Unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to Unstyled on Apple Podcasts and rate us while you're there. You can head over to Refinery29.com to find this episode and more. And make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today and this season was executive produced by Bridget Todd, associate produced by Jay Brunson and Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena and Anna Costanza. Our theme music is by The Artist Cough, and we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. Thank you so much for tuning in to season four of Unstyled. We'll be back here later this summer for season five, and we'll see you then.